I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Vomit on their sweater already. Mom spaghetti. <laughs> Just like lose yourself in the music. The moment. The movement. The you movement. You want it? Makes you never let it go. No. <laughs> you only get one shot. <laughs> <laughs> this is all gonna stay in. Oh fuck! God, Ooh. we're so funny. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. Today, we are bringing you the first of three episodes about the seventh and, I guess, no longer technically final book in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. The series might be coming to a close, but it's spring here in Edmonton and the birds are singing, the flowers are in bloom, and we are ready to read a book all about young love. That's right. We are delighted to bring you a conversation all about budding romance, weddings, and definitely not at all about the inevitability of death against the backdrop of a rising fascist regime. So let's start this sunshiny conversation off with the sorting chat. So since we're going to be talking about this in three parts, we should start off by talking about where we have read up to and where we will be discussing up to. Excellent idea. Yeah. So the chapter that we ended on is The The Bribe. bribe. (laughs) That's right. The Bribe. Our three brave heroes are living in 12 Grimald Place. Mm -hmm. And they have been trying to figure out where the locket is. Mm-hmm. They've sent Creature off to go find Mundungus Fletcher. And this chapter ends with Creature bringing him back mm-hmm. and uh, the revelation that Dolores Umbridge 
has the locket and they're, mm. they're going to need to go get her at the Ministry of Magic. <gasps> so there's a couple of really important revelations that we've had so far in the first 190 or so pages of this book. Yeah. Can you imagine if we were trying to do the first half of this book? Because when we were planning what we were going to talk about, we have like two hours worth of material and we've only read just shy of one third of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. There's like a lot of stuff happening. So let's start off with um, the revelations we get in the first chapter about uh, the changed position of the Malfoys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we see... We're, we're in the Malfoy's manor and Lucius Malfoy, who has been broken out of Azkaban, is he, he has been uh, removed of his wand by Voldemort, who has decided that Lucius doesn't need a wand anymore. Mm -hmm. um, Draco is probably going to be scarred for life by the amount of abuse that he has been forced to witness. And as we learn later the torture that he's being forced to to perform. Um, and Narcissa Malfoy, who is, I, I guess, just like speechless with <laughs> like shock and mm -hmm. horror at the whole thing. Um, yeah, it's really it's really quite telling mm -hmm. how uh, how terrible it is. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you could say that there's some logic in Voldemort is punishing them for having taken advantage of the power involved in being allied with him without taking any of the risks necessary, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, Lucius enjoyed all of his wealth and power while Voldemort was gone. But Voldemort also treats Bellatrix very poorly oh, yes. in that scene, right? That Bellatrix is being just so fatuous and so obviously devoted to him, and he is taunting her mm -hmm. with her cousin who has married a werewolf, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it is clear that even with his most loyal subjects, it's only abuse and fear and cruelty that he uses to draw people in. It's mm -hmm. not like he's selectively kind to some of them. Like, right. he's just across the board terrifying. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But there is something I think really important in the distinction between the way that the Malfoys respond to his violence and abuse and the way that Bellatrix does, right? Yeah. Because Bellatrix, as soon as he, as soon as Voldemort offers even the slightest bit of, um, I don't want to say appreciation because I don't think he genuinely feels appreciation, but like whatever, whatever patronizing boon it is that he passes over to her and she's immediately, she goes from being humiliated and desperate to, to being full of appreciation and love again. Whereas the Malfoys are fucked and they know that and yeah. they are, you can tell that all they're trying to do at this point is just to stay alive. Yeah. Yeah. And they seem to know that it's like a matter of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's terrifying. Speaking of villainous families and their fates, um, we also need to talk about Harry's parting of the ways with the Dursleys, his yeah. final goodbye to the Dursleys. In particular about the sort of shift in behavior, I guess, from Dudley mm -hmm. um, and almost a little tiny bit from Petunia. I almost you know i don't know like because i've read this book several times and every time i get to the point where she says goodbye to harry and she almost goes to say something and then doesn't like i want to know what it is that she's about to say mm. and i i am not convinced that it is anything kind. anything kind because when dudley says his i don't think you're a waste of space which as Harry points out for Dudley is equivalent to saying, I love you. Yeah. And Petunia bursts into tears and runs to Dudley and hugs him and holds him and, and says that he's such a yeah. precious boy or whatever. 
that would have been the opportunity for her to say something kind to Harry because Dudley has opened up that door and she doesn't take it. And then when she leaves and she turns and looks at him, like, I almost feel like in not saying something cruel, that is the greatest kindness that Petunia is able to do for Harry. Oh, yeah. I think my reading has been really, really warped by um, that piece of fan fiction somebody wrote about what Harry Potter would have been like, what the stories would have been like if Petunia had been a good parent to Harry. And I just found that such a powerful story that I was just now I'm like, well, maybe maybe it's in her somewhere. But there's absolutely zero textual evidence at any point. And I agree Mm -hmm. that moment when Dudley is kind and she treats it only as a sign of how good he is, right? It's like the best that she can imagine is rather than being overtly hateful towards Harry is being sort of like patronizing Mm -hmm. towards him, right? Which really seems to be more about how to be, you know, like a good white middle-class subject, like what civility looks like, right? Rather than about kindness. Petunia has been an abusive parent to Harry. And I think it would have done a lot of readers who have had abusive parents a great injustice to at the very end have to have Petunia suddenly be like just even just a smidgen yeah. of a kind person. I think it is a lot truer to Petunia's character mm-hmm. to leave her the way that she is. And I think that that is a much more accurate reflection of what abusive mm-hmm. relationships are like, that they yeah. never actually do change. They yeah. always stay abusive. Yeah. In keeping with that, it's also quite lovely that it shows that Dudley doesn't have to be a direct product of what his parents are like, that he also can grow up and make decisions and that we are not just what our parents are. We Mm -hmm. can be different people. And like, that might be hard depending on how you were brought up, but it's still possible for you to like, look at things your parents are doing and say like, why aren't you worried about him? Like he Mm -hmm. has lived with us my entire life. Why aren't you worried about him coming with us like what's wrong with you mm-hmm. yeah okay are you ready for this yeah. we need to talk about the first of what i'm sure is going to be many deaths in this book which is hedwig i think we need to pour one out for hedwig <laughs> okay here we go all right to hedwig <sighs> to hedwig Like a lot of the other deaths in this series, it's so sudden. It happens in the midst of the scene of chaos so that you almost don't realize it's happening in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it isn't really until afterwards. And he he's given so little chance to realize what's going on and to actually come to terms with it. There's this real sense, I think, that he feels, or I think by sense, I mean, I think the text says it outright, <laughs> that he feels ashamed to feel so sad Right? There's a line something like that. Like he feels like he shouldn't feel in the midst of everything else that's happening. He feels like he Mm -hmm. shouldn't. And yet he feels so sad about it, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, so in keeping with the actual experience of losing a pet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. As human beings, we have a really weird relationship with pets because they are members of our family, but they're not children. They're not siblings. They're not parents, obviously. But the emotional bonds that we. form with them can be as powerful as the emotional bond that you form with a a family member right but for people who don't have pets that's like super weird and and they don't understand the degree of loss that comes with that and so I think as a result 
those of us who have pets, when we lose them, the grief that we experience is really confusing to us, even though it's something that like people have been experiencing, I would say maybe for like millennia. Yeah. That like we don't we don't really know how to yeah. we don't really know how to talk about it in terms that yeah. make any sense, you know? Mm-hmm. I think the other thing too, so like Harry with his savior complex, he feels responsible for everybody's death, right? Yeah. But Hedwig was in a cage wedged between his knees on the motorbike, right? So, like, he's... Super responsible. Yeah. 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 And it is such an undignified death. And she had been so mad at him before because he wouldn't let her out to fly around because he needed to keep her safe. And in his attempt to keep her safe, she died. Like, it's terrible. It's so terrible. And that is, I think, one of the hardest things about the death of a pet is that they are so, so reliant on Mm -hmm. you. And so often, even if it's not your fault, it feels like it must have been some failure of care on your part. Mm -hmm. The other thing that particularly rings true about this for me is that I think that for people who haven't had pets, they assume that that the death of a pet is only going to be hard on you if you've never experienced a quote-unquote real loss. Oh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Ludicrous. Like, and I can say, like, my first dog died, like, two or three months after my mom died. And, God. I, yeah, I just, like, it was so devastating and people were like oh you're really sad about your mom aren't you and i was like no i'm sad about this dog (laughs) these are two separate things yeah like i loved this dog i can love i can love more than one thing at the same time it's amazing you can contain multitudes Uh, yeah (laughs) no it's really it is really amazing how even in the midst of like otherwise terrible Mm -hmm. situations like there is just something really special about that particular kind of love you have for an animal companion and i really i do really appreciate that the text at least gives hedwig a moment of her due you know of, of recognizing how important she was Okay, so uh, <laughs> it's finally called a deluminator. And you know what? I had this moment where I was like, okay, we know that the books are told from Harry's perspective largely. So maybe the fact that it's called a put-outer is because Dumbledore never informs Harry. And it is not until we get the will that we learn that it's called a deluminator. Did Dumbledore invent it? Dumbledore invented it. Okay. Or, I mean, we are not told anything different other than what the minister says, which is that it is likely one of Dumbledore's inventions. Okay. I think it's Dumbledore. Yeah. So we only see it called a put-outer in the voice of the narrative. Yes. Right? 
but not necessarily Harry's. No, correct. Yeah. Not necessarily Harry's, but it is called a put outer in that first chapter mm-hmm. of the first book, mm-hmm. which is not told from Dumbledore's perspective, but mm. is largely from Dumbledore's perspective because he sees the cat <coughs> with the markings, the glasses markings. We have a theory I like. Okay. The theory is that Dumbledore was calling it a put-outer in his head right up until he decided that it would be like a symbolically vital <laughs> item in his last will and testament. And then he was like, oh, fuck, I need a better name for this thing. I can't, like, one of, like, I can't have the symbolic object, which is like, it's a put-outer. It's like, okay, we got to rename this invention. <laughs> Yeah, like, Dumbledore's a busy man, right? Like, maybe it was one of those things where, like, he just never got around to filing the patent papers. And then he was like, oh, I'm going to die real soon. So, like, I guess I should I should get to work. Yeah. You know, I've got this cursed hand. <laughs> Snape con- says my days are numbered. <laughs> I gotta get my yeah. shit in order. I think that's a rock-solid theory. <laughs> He's finally committing it to paper. Yeah. So it's like time to give it a good name. Yeah. 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 He wrote that down and then he mailed it to himself so he'd have the patent. <laughs> On these peaceful spring days, is there anything more pleasant than to go outside and read a book in the sunshine? Let's find out in Flourish and Blots, our segment about print culture and how it's definitely great and not at all easily appropriated by oppressive regimes. It's my favorite thing about print culture. Okay, so we should talk really briefly about the copies that we're reading. Mm-hmm. We're once again reading different copies. Mm-hmm. Mine was a gift mm-hmm. from Rebecca and Sylvie, I believe. Via huh? me. Via Marcel, from my three favorite women, Rebecca, <laughs> Sylvia, and Marcel, who, how did you guys, I still don't remember the context. Rebecca was, it was when we were going to the movie screening of the third movie at Edmonton Potter Watch. Yes. And we had to use a book by donation to get yeah. entry, right? And and Rebecca had several books, including this one. And I was like, hey, <laughs> do you want to give that to Hannah? She doesn't have it. Great. And so well, that's where you got it. Thank you all. It is very precious to me. I did not own the final one because, as we have figured out, I have never read this book before. <laughs> so it's a really exciting experience. So, like, this is the last time I will ever read a Harry Potter book for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's exciting. That is exciting. I mean, I'm not really counting the eighth book, in all honesty, the published script. <laughs> The copy that I'm reading is uh, not the original copy that I first read. Um, I first got the book like a couple days after it came out when I was in Hong Kong and then read it cover to cover on my flight home, Mm -hmm. which was a roller coaster, let me tell you. Um, But the copy that I have right now that I read is one that I bought with our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? Before we went to Europe last summer because hardcovers are remarkably heavy. So So anyway, so yeah, so that's what I have. So I have this like super... I know. Oh yeah, that's a really... Sorry, I'm weighing the two copies in my hands. Like one is significantly heavier than the other. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you're holding the lighter one in your non-dominant hand, which suggests that it's even... Yeah. Oh Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Measurements. (laughs) Um, Yeah, 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 yeah. So the copy that I've been reading is this like really hideous copy with so like boy. it's got like a bright green cover with a big snake face yeah. 
and the words Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows written in like a tacky orange. Just the neonest of oranges. It's mm-hmm. very ugly. Yeah. Do you want to tell people the story about your marginalia? <laughs> So as we may have alluded to or said outright, I can't remember, in an earlier episode, um, Trevor had never finished reading book seven because he doesn't like endings and puts them off for years. So he also had never listened to our podcast because it's rife with spoilers. Apologies, everybody. And so... So he was working really hard to get through all the books and read them so that he could finally finish the last book and then be able to listen to our podcast, which is just lovely and sweet. (laughs) But I passed Trevor in reading and like burned through the last book while I was still pregnant because I wasn't doing much and having trouble sleeping. And so one of the cool things I thought about having like shitty paperback copies of the books is that I could write all over them mm-hmm. because I I like to write in my books, but I have some books that I like to keep precious and not write in them. And so I didn't write all over my hardcover copy that I bought in Hong Kong. And instead I wrote all over <laughs> this paperback <laughs> copy. And so when he went to read it, he I just assumed he would read the hardcover one because we were home, but he didn't. He read the paperback one, which had a bunch of marginalia in it, including... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence obliviate in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. When Fred says, when I get married, I won't be bothering with any of this nonsense. And I included a little sad face, just like bursting with tears. Oh, <laughs> which Trevor came upon while he was yeah. while he was reading it and was like, well, he's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Marginalia. All right. So let's talk about the status of print culture within the books themselves, because these first 200 or so pages are just rife with the importance of texts. And first off, right away, the majority of the first chapter is a re or the second chapter, sorry, the first one from Harry's perspective is a reproduction of the obituary of Dumbledore published in, um, the Daily Prophet. In The Daily Prophet. Thank you. Oh my God. Sentences are hard. And it's just like a full, it's not sort of Harry summarizing it in his head or commenting on what it includes. It is a full reproduction of the entire obituary. Mm-hmm. And then later on, we get a full reproduction of the interview with Rita Skeeter. Mm-hmm. And then we get a full reproduction of the excerpt from her biography of Dumbledore is also included. Mm-hmm. Um so there's tons, like, all of this material showing up in the Daily Prophet that is significant to sort of Harry's quest to figure out what was true about Dumbledore. is just reproduced in its entirety. Like, we're yeah. just given these print narratives within the book. And that is really, that's a really interesting choice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm curious about the Scholastic editions and what they look like, because mm. as we know from Adam, uh, one of our listeners, Scholastic is quite liberal with its paratext and oh. the letter from Hagrid in, in book six about the death of Aragog has like blotches from where the ink ran. <laughs> I'm so disdainful towards paratext. 
which is ridiculous because I love paratext. But anyway, yeah. whatever. Um, yeah, so I'm really curious uh, whether or not these are like written yeah. in some sort of like fancy newspaper font oh, or whatever yeah. in, in yeah. the scholastic books. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by incorporating the actual articles into the text it sort of encourages us to also become not just readers of harry's story but also readers of the same print culture world that harry is reading Mm -hmm. so that we alongside him are also having to read these narratives and form interpretations of them um right rather than only getting it through harry's eyes and i don't i don't think that we've gotten this much incorporated print culture before and i think that's really significant particularly in this moment in harry's story where he's i think this is the book where harry learns to be a critical reader like hermione did it like five books ago this is the one where harry's starting to learn how to read and because harry's learning how to read and he's our narrator we're starting to see the text that he's reading in the book and learning to be critical readers alongside him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so one of the lessons that we're being taught in the process of learning how to read is learning how to read genres, right? So it's, we're being, our attention is being drawn as readers to the different genres in which these texts are operating. And we are being encouraged to think critically about how genres have affordances. Genres Mm -hmm. have forms that um, sort of, shape what kind of information is included and how stories are told and that means that when we read them we cannot assume a transparent relationship between reality and text we have to understand the ways in which genre intervenes as a sort of representational barrier Mm -hmm. between you know quote-unquote objective reality and its textual versions Mm -hmm. and we see that in the the sort of fatuous obituary written by um, Alphaeus Doge. Yeah. Is that how I we're going to say his name? Great. And then the sort of gossipy celebrity biography being mm-hmm. written by Rita Skeeter. Yeah. And I think what's really uh, thrilling about that is they both are, in a sense, biographies, right? Mm-hmm. And they're both ostensibly the same genre, but like different spins on the same genre. Yeah. And I think that that's a really... Um, it's a really thrilling reminder that like genre does not in and of itself entail like one specific rule mm-hmm. of of writing, right? That like several things can fall within one umbrella genre and still be like vastly yeah. different from each other, which yeah. is very exciting. Yeah. So like within the body of biography, right, we've got the hagiography. You're so smart. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I learned it from studying fifth business. Oh. Mm, yeah, that's probably true. Uh, anyway, hagiography. It's the it's the life of a saint. And so it's it's a term that's used for this particular mode of biography or obituary where you retell somebody's story as though they were saint-like, like okay. turning somebody into a saint in the wake of their death, right? Mm-hmm. Versus the sort of memoirish, like the scandally, mm-hmm. gossipy version that Rita Skeeter is telling it in. And it's really interesting how cultural capital is attached to those texts in really different ways, oh, yeah. that they're gendered differently. Mm-hmm. It's the old man who writes the hagiography totally. raising the other dead old white man up to saint-like status, where it's mm-hmm. the women who are writing these sort of gossipy texts, who are mm-hmm. critical, who are sort of refusing received wisdom about this great figure. Yeah. And I really appreciate that even from our protagonist's perspective, that version of the story is not thrown out right away. Yeah. He does he isn't like, oh women, am I right? Like he's there's something about this like disrespectful refusal to sanctify Dumbledore that Harry's like, 
the hagiography is too neat. Mm-hmm. It's too tidy. Nobody's life is like that. Yeah. Right? It's full of holes. Yeah. Yeah. Gender. <laughs> Shh. It's secretly all about gender. Speaking of gender, let's talk about Harry finding one page of a letter from his mother. Man, Lily does not get a lot of coverage in these books. And I think that that is made uber apparent (laughs) because every time we get even a snippet of her, it is hugely significant, right? Like Lily does not make casual appearances in these books. But every time we get anything actually substantive about her, it is weighted with significance. The fact that half of her letter is missing is for sure significant we don't know why yet because we haven't finished the book but it's a big deal yeah there's this really beautiful chapter in judith butler's frames of war where she talks about the significance of the prison poem um and how it is that the text the prison poem becomes a text that stands in for the missing body of the prisoner and that because text itself is so material and because the process of inscribing text on a surface is a material and embodied process the text itself can then stand in for the body Mm -hmm. Um, and that's exactly what's happening in the scene right he says the letter was an incredible treasure proof that lily potter had lived really lived that her warm hand had once moved across this parchment, tracing ink into these letters, these words, words about him, Harry, her son. That's incredible. It is. And it is a prison poem because it's written when she and James and Harry are in hiding and they can't yeah. leave the house. Yeah. yeah, I just really love the status that textuality has in these books, how much time these books and increasingly as they move on, how much attention they spend thinking about the significance of text itself. Like, it's never simple. It's never straightforward. Books and print never mean, um, they never signify things easily. They're always loaded with sort of complex, contrasting meanings. Okay, this just occurred to me right now, but something that is also, I think, really important about this letter is that that letter would have been written to Sirius after he left his family's home, right? So the fact that it appears in Grimmauld Place is because he has brought it back with him. So, yeah. So this letter is not just important to Harry, but it's also very precious to Sirius, right? And it, I think it stands as proof for us that he was friends with Lily as well as with James. Because I think the way that the narrative treats it is that, like, he and James were BFFs and, like, then there was Lily. But, like, no, like, that letter from Lily to to Sirius using his nickname is is proof that they were very close. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not something that's explicitly stated in the text, right? That's all subtext. Yeah. There's just something about spring that makes me want to focus on the positive that just limits my perspective in a super narcissistic and fleeting way. Hey, speaking of narcissistically narrowed perspectives, it's time for the boy who narrated our conversation about narrative perspective and the limits of readerly knowledge. So once again, we open with a chapter that is not from Harry's perspective, but mm-hmm. is instead from uh, the perspective of uh, sinister, dark characters like mm-hmm. Snape and Voldemort. Mm-hmm. But sort of from no one's perspective, right? Because mm-hmm. we can't see inside the head of any of the characters in this no. scene. No, not at all. And it um, it reminds me a lot of the of the chapter Spinner's End because it opens with two characters meeting up. We mm-hmm. learn who those two characters are. They go and they meet up with. Um, other significant 
villainous characters. Yeah. Um, so it, in a lot of ways, it does mirror that chapter mm-hmm. as well. It's really incredible to me how the the way these chapters are written, which almost that quite consistently in the past few books have focused on Snape in some way, which is obviously sort of building us up to the important revelation about Snape, but which really is sort of drawing us in by withholding information. It's drawing us in to really look at the choices Snape is making, mm-hmm. look at the way he's behaving and try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And even knowing as I do what the revelation is, I'm still looking at his behavior here and having like, I feel myself, I kept flipping back, right? Because there's the the conversation between him and the other Death Eater about mm-hmm. um, what date they should go. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wait, so is Snape leading them away from Harry? No, wait, Snape, Snape tells them the actual mm-hmm. correct date that Harry is planning on leaving and especially like rereading or knowing how things are going to end. It's like oh, Snape must be manipulating Voldemort and the information the other Death Eater has must be accurate, but it's not. It was actually the lie planted by the Order. Mm. Yeah, it's like, it's fair. I'm very confused. It's also really confusing because Snape makes reference to a source that both he and Voldemort have uh, discussed in the past Mm -hmm. because... I don't know who it is either. And what? I've read the books. <laughs> what? I know. I can't remember. I think the only thing I can think is that maybe it's Dumbledore. But like, I like, but Dumbledore's mm. dead. I don't know. Is he? <gasps> maybe he's not. <gasps> I don't know. You haven't finished reading the book. So then as you're reading, like the lack of knowledge provided in those chapters then gives you that suspicious outlook, right? Mm-hmm. That you're looking at everybody and you're like, are they the source? Mm-hmm. Like who is there's something about setting up this opening chapter where you get a sense of the stakes but none of the knowledge Mm -hmm. encourages you to take on the same suspicious mindset that the characters in the books have also taken on that you start to also suspect everybody yeah you're like well i know i know one of you is a traitor so who is it yeah yeah except that i don't think it was any of them (gasps) because maybe snape was lying So what we know so far is that Snape knew the real date that Mm -hmm. they were leaving. But as they pointed out in the order, he didn't know any of the details, right? Voldemort didn't know that there would be seven Harrys because that confused them, right? So whatever information Snape passed on about the date was correct. But whoever he got that information from either withheld the information about the seven Harrys or... Snape deliberately withheld that piece of information, right? So it depends on who the source was. I don't think it was Hagrid. I know that the book, like, is encouraging us to think that it was Hagrid because Hagrid's a drunkard and tells secrets. (laughs) Bless him. (laughs) He's like me. I've been there, Hagrid. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We hear you, brother. Yeah. So all I can think at this point is that it it must have been Dumbledore. But Mm. I don't know when wouldn't have known the plan he was dead already he was dead yeah. yeah so like but maybe the plan was like way early no because they changed the plan last mm, okay Fuck, i don't know i don't we'll have to read the rest of the book i guess <laughs> okay from there we move into what we're used to which is harry's limited perspective and mm-hmm. very early on within a couple of chapters we already start getting those great little snippets that give us a sense of harry's unreliability which starts with harry stepping on a cup of tea left outside his door and surmising that it was left as a booby trap for him. Um, Cause like, I mean, 
That's like classic Dursleys, right? Constantly booby trapping their home. Yeah, you know that Petunia would have loved to have spilled tea all over the place, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then the shift in perspective when he suddenly sees that Dudley does not think of him as an enemy anymore. All of a sudden he's like, oh my God, wait, if not everybody in this household my enemy, that tea could have meant something different. Mm -hmm. Like that might just have been a cup of tea he left for me. Mm -hmm. That might've been him reaching out. And we don't know that for sure, right? They don't actually talk about it. It's just suddenly that shift in his view that he, he realizes that he only assumed the worst because he assumed everybody Mm -hmm. was against him. Yeah. And I love, I love that line that Harry thinks or that the narrator tells us that Harry is thinking when um, it occurs to Harry that, when Dumbledore was alive, the only conversations they ever had were about Harry, Harry's future, Harry's past, and Harry's plans. And I was like, that's exactly what the books are about. That's funny. Good job. Good job, narrator. (laughs) Yeah, because that is all Harry has been thinking about, right? And he's had, from what I can recall, he's had one other similar revelation, which is like not a textual revelation, but a Harry actually noticing for himself how limited his perspective has been and that's when he finds out about neville's parents Mm -hmm. and he's like oh my god it never occurred to me that other people's parents also had terrible things happen to them during that war (laughs) when tons of people died right it's just that he had decided since everybody else was telling him he was famous and special he was like well i must be the only one yeah exactly yeah but here what we see happening is him realizing in the wake of dumbledore's death especially reading all of these texts about dumbledore realizing not only that he knows incredibly little about him, but that he never made any effort to ask. Like he never asked Dumbledore anything about himself. He never tried to have a conversation. And that textualizing of that recognition is a different kind of moment, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the kind of moment where we as readers can look back and be like, oh, Harry was being biased here. It's Harry himself actually saying, oh, I just wasn't thinking about this. I wasn't Mm -hmm. even wondering about this yeah and it makes sense that in the wake of dumbledore's death harry would be regretting never having like taken the opportunity to um to like ask dumbledore personal questions etc but like Mm -hmm. he they didn't have that kind of relationship like i guess the thing is that it's not surprising to me that harry didn't because he was his teacher they weren't friends you know he never wondered he never speculated right like that's part of the thing I find curious about mm. his relationship, about all of the students, really looking back on it, all of the students' relationships with their teachers, which is that I remember wildly speculating about my teachers' private lives mm. in high school, just being so curious about who these people were the rest of the time. I mean, they do with some of them, right? Because they have the theory that Filch and Madame Pince are like oh, having yeah. a secret yeah. affair or whatever, yeah. right? So like some of them they do, yeah. but you're right. No, for, for the most part, they just... Yeah. And he sure as hell, like, even in his private moments, Harry's never like, I wonder where Dumbledore comes from. I wonder how somebody becomes this kind of powerful wizard. I wonder mm-hmm. what he does in when he is away. Like, he just, like, he has a remarkable lack of curiosity about other people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's very true. But what's equally interesting that we see in the beginning of the book is that Harry, having realized retroactively that his perspective has been so limited... Um, his reaction to that is outrage. Yes. Right? That he's like, um, 
I don't know the truth. And now having recognized that I didn't know the truth, I want so badly to know the truth. Mm-hmm. And people keep telling him, like, um, just remember the best about Dumbledore. Like, just remember the good times you had. Uh, don't let all of these rumors sway you or spoil your image of him. And he's like, no, you are telling me that I should choose to believe. And I don't want to choose to believe. I want to know. Mm-hmm. And that's a marked departure from, um, is it in the sixth book where he tells Dumbledore that he's like Dumbledore's man? Right? When Scrimgeour's like, yes. you're really Dumbledore's man. And Harry's like, yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's like in the sixth book, we see Harry choosing to have unquestioning faith in Dumbledore. And in this book, he's like, nope. No more faith in this man. I refuse to have any faith in him. I want to know. I wonder how much of that is because Dumbledore... This is a stupid question. Because Dumbledore's dead? Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, was Harry's faith in Dumbledore premised on the fact that Dumbledore was, for all intents and purposes, invincible? And then once he becomes mortal Mm -hmm. and dead, all of a sudden he stops being all the things that Harry believed he was, right? Because that one key point that he was invincible, the most powerful wizard in the world, once that point is no longer true, then nothing about Dumbledore could be true, right? Yeah, Yeah. Mm. I really do think that prior to his death, Dumbledore was a godlike figure Mm -hmm. for Harry and that his faith in him was a sort of theological faith, right? That that because he is all powerful i don't need to question how he does things i don't need to question where his power comes from i can just put my faith entirely in it Mm -hmm. and when the this revelation and that i think when we are children we often have a theological relationship for example to our parents Mm -hmm. right and this revelation that dumbledore is not all powerful ever um suddenly makes him go back and look at everything again and be like what was happening here? Mm-hmm. What was any of this? Yeah. Right? Because nothing means what he thought it may- meant if Dumbledore was not all powerful. And this is where he starts to wonder to himself if he was only ever a tool mm-hmm. that Dumbledore was using. Right? Because yeah. um, that's where if Dumbledore is just a man with a plot, then Harry is a tool. Whereas if Dumbledore is a god, then Harry is an acolyte. Mm-hmm. And those mean really different things. Yes. Man, it's just so nice out. I can't focus on any of this. Hey, Hannah, can we have class outside today? Pretty please? What if it's potions class? Our segment on pedagogy under totalitarian government. Well, when you put it like that, (laughs) I guess so. You have to promise to pay attention, though, even though we're outside. One of the things that I was thinking about when I started rereading this book is... um, what we would talk about in potions class because they're not in school, right? Uh But it became very clear very early on how significant their magical education so far features in the way that this book is written. So like it doesn't take place at Hogwarts, but so much of the way that they are preparing for their mission is 
bound up in the types of education that they've received so far, right? So like in that second chapter when Harry like knocks over the cup of tea and he's thinking he's got that cut on his finger from the mirror and he's thinking about how it seems like a real lack in his magical education that he never learned how to like fix basic wounds. Mm -hmm. And you're reading it and you're like, actually, yeah, like that would be like a really helpful thing. (laughs) It's like like a super basic thing, but they had a nurse at school, so he didn't need to learn to do it. Yeah. And like we certainly don't learn how to put Band-Aids on in school in our muggle schooling system so like i guess it makes sense but at the same time you have this moment where you're like oh wow like no that would actually be really useful information if people Mm -hmm. learned how to do those basic things similarly we have the way that our three main characters are packing for this mission not just packing but also preparing it so clearly mirrors the way that they prepared for their schoolwork and for their essays and for their exams right Mm -hmm. so we have um Hermione, who is like has been prepared for months, right? She's got, like more she is more prepared than the other two than it even occurred to the other two that they might think about being. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the way that she prepares her parents uh to like protect them, mm-hmm. the way that she packs an entire library, the way that she prepares on behalf of both Harry and Ron, knowing that they probably won't be prepared, yeah. right? So like Hermione, just like in school is taking care of everybody else's shit while also being completely on top of it herself. Ron, <laughs> Ron doesn't seem to do any work. Just say Ron's name and then laugh. <laughs> what a loser. <laughs> I will give him credit. He seems to have a great idea, right? As Ron yeah. often does. Ron often has, yeah. Ron often has terrible ideas. <laughs> but he's an ideas man, Ron. He's an ideas is. man, you know? I'm like, you know, you can't always have gems. Some of those ideas, you know, like there's no bad ideas in brainstorming, they can't right? Can't all be winners, they but this all. his idea for this is very good. Yeah, yeah, for taking care of his family with the idea of like of um transfiguring the ghoul in their attic to make it look like him, like that's a really good idea. Ron doesn't do any of the work. His dad and his brothers <laughs> do the work. And Ron doesn't appear to pack. Hermione packs for him because she packs pants that are too small or like trousers that are too small i'm not sure which jeans Jeans, yeah so it's not as it's not as underwear but anyway yes and then harry bless his soul thinks he's going to be able to do this alone and is trying to do it alone and trying to prepare really smartly and for a while and can't yeah he's just like not able to and is also like really um really fails to recognize how important it is to his two best friends um that they're in this together yeah 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 the other the other thing that's going on as we try to parse out what this education is going to mean outside of the context of hogwarts is that once again as we talked about previously um we're being called upon to think about how it is that within a series of books that's ostensibly about education and the value of a school we consistently see protagonists not going back to school, right? So we talked about this in the context of the Weasleys, of Fred and George leaving Hogwarts early um, and how that's there's evidence that they as students were not served mm-hmm. by Hogwarts. And similarly, we can see in um, in these three characters sort of dropping out of school, we can both see how school is not being held up as like the ultimate safe space as the only possible answer for what young people ought to be doing that in fact leaving school is the right decision for them in this moment um and we also get this glimpse at how 
the same education did not prepare them all equally to mm-hmm. thrive in the world, yeah. right? That this kind of formal education really only prepares people who are already predisposed to use that kind of education. So somebody like Hermione, right, the kinds of theoretical learning that they acquired in Hogwarts, those are useful for her, right? When they're Ron and Harry ask her if she knows how to use the Obliviate spell, mm-hmm. and she's like, well, I understand the theory, so I can probably do it, right? She's somebody who can learn the theory of things and then translate that into praxis. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case with Harry and Ron. That's not yeah. how they learn. And so they were served less through the formal Hogwarts education then they've been served by like a series of other life events that have prepared them in other ways. Okay, so this is a series of books about a school, but it never insists that there's only one right way of learning mm-hmm. and only or only one right relationship to have to schooling. Yeah, or that school is in and of itself always an uncompromising good, mm-hmm. right? Because we also learn at the end of the chapter the bribe that Hogwarts has become the exact opposite of a safe space, right? Yeah. Because so much of the books so far have been about how Hogwarts is a sanctuary for Harry and for people like Harry. And now suddenly, because of the change in government and because of the change in um, administration of Hogwarts, mm-hmm. school means a completely different thing. Now suddenly school is a terrifying place. It's compulsory for all young witches and wizards to go. And it is no longer... It's no longer a sanctuary, and we will learn later on exactly how bad it becomes. Yeah. So the other major thing that shifts now that our protagonists are outside of school is that their relationship to their teachers Mm -hmm. also shifts, right? Because when you are no longer at school, all of a sudden, teachers are not natural authority figures. And we can see, even for these three characters who have always been to greater or lesser degrees, a little resistant towards the assumption of authority are now pushing it even harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that especially in this scene where Harry freaks out at Lupin. That is where he, you know, when Lupin comes to 12 Grimald Place and um, suggests that he would like to come along. And Harry, like, loses it and is like, you are going to have a kid and you are abandoning your child. Like, it's obviously triggering for him because he lost his parents at a young age. And so this idea that this man who he had respected would voluntarily leave his unborn child behind just seems particularly monstrous to him. We'll talk about Lupin's motivations in a moment. But, um... The way he responds to Lupin, he's responding to him as a peer. He's not responding to him as a teacher or as yeah. an authority figure. He's responding to him as a like, as an adult who he can talk back to. Yeah, and that's really marked by the fact that they call him Remus in this book. For the first time, they mm-hmm. don't call him Remus in any of the previous books. I think they usually call him Lupin. Yeah. And I think they don't tend to use his name to his face. <laughs> yeah. uh, they'll like refer to him as Lupin. But in this one, they were doing that. They, yeah, yeah, I definitely noticed yeah. it this time because I remember thinking... Wow, that's a shift. And I wasn't sure if it was because they had come of age. And so because they were all now 17, referring to him as Remus was maybe something that came naturally to them. But like, Harry doesn't stop calling Mr. and Mrs. Weasley, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley. The narrative still calls him Lupin, but they call him Remus to his face. Yeah. 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 So they're on a completely different plane now. And it's interesting to watch how characters respond to that, Mm -hmm. right? Because it is this moment. I mean, I think we all remember that moment when we are starting to think of ourselves as adults and to treat the adults around us as our peers and the adults around us don't always love that (laughs) because they're really resistant to the idea that teenagers, that sort of older teenagers are also 
adults, mm-hmm. right? Like they've hit the age of majority here. They have all of the responsibilities and dangers attendant upon being an adult. And yet the adults around them don't want to recognize that, right? So Lupin flings Harry across the room. And then you're pointing out that there's another scene where they have a similar sort of confrontation with authority. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When they, um, the minister Rufus Gringer comes to present to them very grudgingly their bequeathments from Dumbledore's will, and they respond to him with incredible derision and disrespect, and he loses it. He cannot stand it. And so much of that is because they're not respecting his authority. Like, he gets angry not because they're not cooperating, but because they are laughing at him. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's not surprising that these characters are suspicious of unquestioned authority and have very little interest in, like, bowing down in front of somebody who has an office, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they've learned the offices don't mean a hell of a lot, Mm -hmm. but Scrimger is not into that at all and he responds with a sort of violence and aggression Mm -hmm. that indicates what happens when you push back against these naturalized forms of power Mm -hmm. right it lashes back at you Mm -hmm. which is really important to do and you should all do it oh yeah (laughs) especially if that seemingly naturalized authority figure is a white man just say no yeah yeah literally fight the man You know what? You're right, Marcel. It's way too nice to be cooped up inside talking about dumb old books. Let's go for a walk in the forbidden forest and talk about power, oppression, and politics. Just fun spring topics. Yay! Okay, so we have gone on record as being not super impressed with Rowling's retroactive declaration that Dumbledore is a queer character. And yet... As we've been rereading these books, I think that we have both been looking for subtextual indications Mm -hmm. that that was at least something that was being built into the narrative, whether or not it was being stated outright. And I think at this point, we're sort of semi-convinced that there are narrative traces of him being a queer character, and that so far that's come through entirely in the subtextual homophobia in Rita Skeeter's biography. Yes. I would like to say also that this does not change our opinion that if you are serious about having queer characters represented in your books, you need to do a better job. However, in Rita Skeeter's biography, or actually, no, it's, wait, wait, hang on. Hold that for a second. Okay. So it is the interview. Okay. The interview that is being published with Rita Skeeter by Betty Brathwaite. She is being interviewed about Dumbledore. The first indication that we found is they're talking about Grindelwald. Crumb says Grindelwald. Everybody (laughs) else says Grindelwald. Okay, Grindelwald. So here's the line. After they've read my book, people may be forced to conclude that Grindelwald simply conjured a white handkerchief from the end of his wand and came quietly. We all know that wands are dicks. And if wands are dicks, then this image of something white coming out of the end of a wand while somebody comes quietly is like intensely homo. I mean, it's just intensely phalloerotic, dick erotic, erotic. I mean, homoerotic in this context. Dicky. Dicky. It's just super dicky. <laughs> just cocktastic. God damn it. This podcast is disgusting. <laughs> and then shortly after Skeeter is referring to the relationship that Harry has with Dumbledore. And she says, 
it's been called unhealthy, even sinister, and that there's no question that Dumbledore took an unnatural interest in Potter from the word go. And so basically what we're reading from these two examples is scathing homophobia on the part of Rita Skeeter. It's a tactic of homophobia to conflate queerness with pedophilia, right? And it's a way of sort of producing queerness and homosexuality as aberrant, Mm -hmm. um, as unnatural, Mm -hmm. um, as illegal, etc. And the term unnatural, which is such a loaded word in the history of homophobia in relation to the relationship between an adult man and a boy, really does have this heavy Mm -hmm. subtext. Mm -hmm. Not of queerness, but of homophobia. Yeah. So even were there no revelation that Dumbledore himself was a queer character, there's strong textual evidence that Rita Skeeter is accusing him Mm -hmm. of queerness in a deeply homophobic way. Yes. Well explained. Thanks. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Speaking of queerness. Speaking of queerness. Shall we return to our own theory about (laughs) queer characters so in the last episode we Mm -hmm. talked about i mean not the last episode whenever we last talked about a book um four months ago ago. (laughs) (laughs) we talked about uh your theory marcel of lupin being a queer character and of being a werewolf standing in for hiv and aids and you articulated the argument at the time that there's absolutely no indication anywhere that Lupin is attracted to or fond of Tonks in any way. And thus it's easily readable that there are other reasons why he consents to this marriage. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, we go back to that episode, whichever one it was. Go listen, re-listen to all the episodes, you'll find it. Um, <laughs> right? But we, we articulated this theory about sort of Lupin's werewolf ism standing in for this sort of this queer subtext and um this so far this book really really reinforces that theory yeah yeah because when he when they are helping harry escape at the beginning lupin does not show any honeymooning (laughs) i'll call it with tonks tonks like harry keeps noticing how radiant and glowing tonks is which is like also a super obnoxious like that's an obnoxious subtext about like the way that women change when you get married and have babies that like all of a sudden you're just like fucking glowing and like thrilled to the t whatever but like lupin if anything harry notices is actually more surly and pissy than he was before and then of course we learn and more lined and more haggard looking mm-hmm. and then we learn or harry learns that tonks is pregnant mm-hmm. And Lupin is at this point like trying to get out of this relationship and is trying to join Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And for Harry, and the I would say the overt message that we're getting is that it's because Lupin doesn't want to inflict upon his family, Tonks and his unborn child, the stigma of being associated with him. 
But what is covertly in that is the fact that he's chosen to live a lifestyle that does not make him happy. Mm-hmm. And he's done it because he mm-hmm. was pressured into it and because I think he wanted to, quote unquote, fit in mm-hmm. to normative society. Or he thought that an attempt to fit into normative society would make him happy. And as it turns out, it's made him even more unhappy because it's mm-hmm. made him painfully aware on a daily basis of the ways in which he will never fit into that relationship. He will never mm-hmm. fit into that society. That he's having to lie constantly about who he is. Yeah. And the moment where he suggests to Harry and Hermione and Ron that, you know, you know what I am, mm-hmm. I could help you is this fantasy of a life in which he can be what he is without having to hide it, without having to be ashamed of it, without actually being something that contributes to his community Mm -hmm. rather than something that he has to hide that makes the people he may or may not care about, um, puts them at risk, Mm -hmm. right? Or makes them ashamed. Yeah, and he has that line about how my kind don't usually breed and how he's convinced that his unborn child is going to be like him Mm -hmm. and he's going to pass on his condition. Like all of these are incredibly bloated terms if we are thinking about Lupin as a character who has HIV or AIDS, right? I want to add there that sort of if we're thinking of this in terms of an HIV or AIDS narrative, I think that there are larger ways to also read Lupin's story in terms of disability Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, chronic illness in general to think about how it is that the idea of being sort of damaged imprints itself on you such that reproduction seems like a crime Mm -hmm. that sort of the desire to seek out what appears to be a normal happy life seems somehow like that's not for you you don't get to have that yeah like you don't deserve it and even in Canada our laws really reinforce that right now like if you have HIV you're legally obliged to disclose that to your sexual partners so that they can consent to have sex with you with full information as though anybody ever has full information with somebody that they're about to have sex Mm -hmm. with. So yeah, and so what we see here in the books is a kind of articulation of that homophobia and of that pathologizing of same-sex desire, right? And so like Lupin is afraid of passing on his condition as though werewolfism, as though the condition in and of itself makes you a less valuable human being, Mm -hmm. right? And like Fenrir Greyback is a bad person. He's not a bad person because he's a werewolf. He's a bad person who happens to be a werewolf, right? Well said. All right. So the next thing we want to talk about is... uh, Oh, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Jew watch. There are no Jews in this section of the book. Actually, wait. Okay. No, you know what I want to talk about? Okay. I really, really, really want to talk about... The way in which Nazi imagery is being used to represent Voldemort's rise to power. So like when Snape and the other Death Eater meet in that first chapter, they do a salute with their left hands. And it doesn't tell us what kind of salute it is. It's just like they just do a salute with their left arms. Don't. (laughs) Could be anything. And you're like, like a hi? (laughs) When Lupin joins up with our three protagonists and is uh, sharing with them all of the changes that have taken place in like the Muggle Registry. Like basically what's happening here is we're getting a lot of references to like third reich policy that treated jews as thieves and as um untrustworthy uh, and as needing to be registered and watched and monitored 
we're seeing all of those same things being used with muggleborns, which I just find really fascinating and intriguing, not so much because we lack literature about Nazi Germany or about the Holocaust, but particularly in the way that Ron's reactions to these things are coming out. So like Ron, precious Ron, (laughs) says, well, they'll never get away with it. And then Hermione is like, they're doing it. They're literally getting away with it right now. And then Ron is like, well, what if all the wizards like claim that the Muggleborn wizards are part of their families? And it's like, this is a thing that people did mm-hmm. um, during the Holocaust, right? Like they would take Jews into their homes and claim that they were like relatives, like cousins or nieces or nephews or whatever. And the point is that like you can do those things on an individual basis, but... Um, at the end of the day, that doesn't stop the policy and it doesn't, it saves individual lives. It doesn't stop systemic violence. Yeah. Sweet Ron. Poor dear Ron. So this, I mean, this does tie into the thing we want to talk about, which was this, you know, this larger sort of revelation that what has been an important thread through the rest of the book series is going to be central to this final book. That is the violence towards muggle-borns or mudbloods from the perspective of pure-blood wizards and how what has been sort of an implicit set of Nazi references is going to now really come to the forefront as just like a clear parable for Nazism. Mm-hmm. You know, the Muggleborn registry is clearly a key part of it and that also gets woven through in some of the revelations about squibs as we're mm. thinking about how it is that pure-blood families have squib children, that's non-magical children, and that the revelation that Dumbledore's sister may or may not have been a squib and that she may have been hidden by the family and possibly eventually killed by the family because she was the sort of shame to the family. So all of these tropes of sort of impurity and the desire to establish blood purity. What that has been making me think about is the sort of larger logics of the narrative in terms of how muggles and wizards are being differentiated, right? Because ultimately what this comes down to is the absolute otherness of muggles from wizards, Mm -hmm. that they are like different species, Mm -hmm. that to be one is to be by definition, not the other. And the problem with muggle-borns and squibs is that they transgress that clean boundary mm-hmm. between self and other, right? Muggle-borns imply that the other could become me. Squibs imply that I could become the other. And there's danger in those things because mm-hmm. those things that transgress boundaries are um, they are unclean. They're threatening. Mm-hmm. And I think there's got to be some significance to the fact that, yeah, we have a muggle-born character included in our protagonists but she's not our narrator our narrator is pure blood mm-hmm. our narrator is a pure blood who was like a wizard princeling incorrectly forced to live with muggles the only muggles we see in the text mm-hmm. who are heinous who are fundamentally othered characters because of all the ways in which they are terrible because they represent all the things that the wizarding world does not And that magical moment at the beginning of the first book, you're a wizard, Harry, is like, you are not this thing you hate. Mm -hmm. You are this special thing. You are this other thing. Now you get to be ushered into this other world. And the logic of that narrative of you were special all along seems to undermine to me this other logic of like, we need to be suspicious of that wall. 
And yet, when we get Creature's story, when Creature is telling us about why Regulus joined the Death Eaters, it's because Voldemort was supposed to bring wizards out of hiding. Mm -hmm. And so what is beneath all of these layers of violence towards muggles is the fact that muggle fear and resentment and violence towards wizards is what drove the wizards into hiding in the first place, right? So it's not just a simple wizards are more powerful than muggles and therefore they will try to dominate the muggles and put them in their rightful place, which is under their Mm -hmm. boots. It's much more complicated, right? This is the reaction of an oppressed people against the oppressors, the large majority of whom are not aware that they are oppressing anybody. Yeah. And that the journey that we see Harry going through is, you know, sort of his recognition that he's a wizard makes him be like, okay, then I'm not muggle. And then it's a slow sort of recognition throughout the process of the books that that basic wizard means not muggle has these violent implications to it, Mm -hmm. can be deployed in these really violent ways. And that there's got to be a sort of another way of working through that history of difference that does not ultimately reinforce the sort of fundamental difference. And it's the squib and the muggle-born that are the figures that let us think that through. Like, one thing I was like, well, why aren't there any muggles in these books? And I was like, but there's tons of muggles. They're the readers. A hundred percent of the readers are muggles, right? And so you end up getting interpolated into this world as on the other side of this divide from your protagonists, which is also really interesting and complicated. I'm wondering also, now that we're like really getting into this conversation, suddenly the relationship between Dudley and Harry becomes much more significant. I like the fact that Harry's experience in the muggle world is terrible because that necessarily complicates a simplistic reading of like, well, no, muggles aren't bad. Some muggles are bad. And so the idea of Dudley and Harry parting ways with a handshake as equals who care about each other but like aren't ever going to have anything in common I think is like much more important to the overall message Mm -hmm. that this book is getting at which is that like you don't have to be friends to accept each other but like tolerance isn't the same thing as acceptance right this notion of tolerance Mm -hmm. which I really hate I really hate the word tolerance because tolerance is like you're not worth what I'm worth, but I'm not going to hurt you. (laughs) Whereas acceptance is like, you're not like me. And like, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah. So can I segue? Because tolerance also gets us at the revelations about house elves. So we finally have, we've had Hermione saying for many, many books now, like house elves are slaves. House elves are treated so abominably. And we have this responsibility to do everything that we can to try to counteract that history of oppression, that history of violence, as best we can, despite the fact that it's complicated and fraught. You know, we had two books ago, we had Dumbledore say to Harry, like, part of what led to Sirius's death was his insistence on mistreating creature. Um, when you treat the those around you who are different from you, like they don't count, like their feelings don't matter, that's going to have repercussions. There's going to be backlash for that. And yet through the whole sixth book, Harry 
did not internalize that even remotely. And we commented on that. We were like, wow, he didn't listen to that lesson. <laughs> it's not until this book that he listens to that lesson. And the mm-hmm. thing that makes him listen to it is hearing Creature's story, mm-hmm. is hearing the what happens, like how Voldemort treats him and how Harry and Sirius's treatment of him has been so much closer to Voldemort's Mm -hmm. than it was to the treatment of the rest of the black family Mm -hmm. who cared for him. Mm -hmm. And that moment where Regulus sacrifices his life because he won't do this to Creature, because he won't put Creature through the same torture that Voldemort did. Like, that's remarkable, right? It's remarkable in that it refuses to let anybody but Voldemort be purely evil. And it's remarkable because it really drives home the house elves are slaves and they love those who treat them well. Mm-hmm. They love those who are compassionate to them. And, you know, what the sort of long-term impact of this kind of abuse is psychologically mm-hmm. for these characters. And yet, once Harry has realized this and decides that he will start trying to be a good master to creature and be tolerant of him and treat him, you know, with some kindness, he is rewarded for being a virtuous master by having a happy consenting slave. Mm. That is the outcome of that, that he no longer has to deal with the inconvenience of a belligerent slave who dislikes him. He now gets to have a slave who serves him consentingly. Mm -hmm. And that's a really fucked up outcome Mm -hmm. because it ultimately reinforces the possibilities of benevolent slavery. Mm -hmm. To which I say boo. Boo. (laughs) I guess the fact that house elves have a human-like consciousness, that that makes it impossible to be like, well, you know, it's similar to how you are with your uh, helper animals. I'm like, no, they're not helper animals because they have human-like consciousness. Yeah. Hedwig was a helper animal. Yeah. Creature is a person. Yeah. You know, the problem with spring in Canada is that the weather can turn on you at any moment. One second, you're outside, you're enjoying the sunshine, and then the next second, there are clouds rolling across the sky, and out of nowhere, (gasps) Granger danger! So we both wanted to talk about Hermione's purse, but I think we wanted to talk about it in different ways. Um, The thing that really struck me is that while it is absolutely an indication that Hermione is so much fucking better at magic than the other two of them and so much more prepared and so much smarter and so much better in every way, she is also turned into their fucking nanny. <laughs> she is, I mean, she has a Mary Poppins magical bag. Yeah. She's got clothes for them. She's got like everything they need and it's in a purse that she carries around with her. It's so it's sliding so quickly into a sort of Mrs. Weasley territory of like the witch's job is to be the magical caretaker. Mm -hmm. Um, Even when she is arguably the most powerful wizard of the three of them. It's so, and it is, I mean, it's like, oh my God, Hermione's so, she's so smart and she's so powerful. And yet she is reduced to carrying fucking changes of clothes around (laughs) a couple of useless guys. And Ron's like, 
these jeans are too tight. Like, yeah. fuck you, Ron. Pack yeah. your own fucking bag. God's sake, Ron. Ugh. I mean, we have other moments in this book so far that are just making it clear how unbelievably hardcore Hermione is. Okay. <laughs> it seems to me that it is a mark of how powerful the patriarchy is that in reading this and in seeing Hermione's preparedness and in being able to compare her to the emotional labor and caretaking that Mrs. Weasley does, I find myself focused on how these tropes of femininity are offensive instead of how the uselessness of the male characters is indicative of how useless the male characters are. So in this conversation that we were just having, I found myself thinking like, oh, it's so dumb that Hermione has to carry around a purse that has all their stuff in it. And And then I was like, wait a second, no. That's a really smart charm to use because no one is going to see her tiny little beaded bag and think that it's full of things, right? Like she's using her femme identity to be prepared and to protect her friends. Yeah, you can absolutely like just insist on reading this in the opposite way, which is like not that Hermione is somehow being reduced as a character, but rather that attention is being drawn to the ways in which she is like so much better equipped and the men around her are just so underserved by the kinds of training they have received. Like they're so self-centered, like all of these sort of socialized masculine behaviors Mm -hmm. that they have been indoctrinated in have made them just like super fragile, right? It's like masculinity is so fragile and the forms of sort of femme identity that Hermione embodies in these books is just so much more versatile and And powerful powerful and unflappable right we were talking about her unflappability that like Mm -hmm. they get super fucking bummed out the second something doesn't go their way and hermione's just like well things often don't go my way so i'm just gonna keep (laughs) trying yeah 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 hermione you're the best okay So we talked a little bit earlier about how Ron prepares for the mission by protecting his family. But the way that Hermione protects her family is serious, right? So she modifies her parents' memories, convinces them that they don't have a daughter and that they have always wanted to move to Australia. And so they do. And she has this moment where she's like, if I make it, I'll try to reverse the charm. I don't know if I can. Yeah. And if I don't make it, well, you know, they don't have, they don't think they have a daughter. So they'll be very happy, which is like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like fucking heartbreaking. It's so unbelievably painful as a thing to do and takes so much more emotional fortitude than any of the things that Ron or Harry do Mm -hmm. to protect the people that they love, right? Like it is one thing to leave behind your family that is hard in all kinds of ways, but to write yourself out of your family's own memory is just, just so unbelievably courageous. Mm -hmm. Like, and so... So selfless. Yes, yes. So entirely about like, I will do everything I can to keep the people I care about safe Mm -hmm. without putting my own well-being at the center of it. Yeah. Yeah. God, she's so badass. So while we were watching Hermione be incredibly badass throughout the first 200 pages of this book, we are also, we're simultaneously watching Ron and Harry just, I mean, just becoming worse by every page, but particularly... (laughs) 
Okay, so for Harry's birthday, Ron gives him a book about wizard pickup culture, right? It's like 21 Ways to Charm Witches or whatever it's called. I don't even remember what it's called, but it's obnoxious. And apparently Fred and George gave a copy to Ron, and Ron has found it very useful. We see how useful Fred and George have found it, as at the wedding they, like, Peace out with a couple of Fleur's Vila cousins. I almost called them Velcro cousins. I was like, <laughs> well, <laughs> no judgment, ladies. So, like, Harry hasn't started reading the book, obviously. But, like, every time he gives somebody a compliment, like, when he compliments Mrs. Weasley, uh, Ron, like, gives him the thumbs up, kind of, like, surreptitiously. It's like, no, Ron, like, that's just how you interact with other humans. You're just, like, nice to them and show appreciation. Yeah. But, obviously, Ron is using these tricks to get with Hermione. And so we see him giving her a lot of compliments that he's never given her before. But then, at the same time, what happens is he's he's not, like, interacting with Hermione as a person. And this is what pickup culture does, right? And I think Neil talked about this when we were talking about the movies. Mm-hmm. Pickup culture fundamentally presumes that women are not people and that you can use a series of tricks to convince them that they should like you or have sex with you or whatever, right? And so we see with Ron that this book hasn't helped him to be an intimate friend of Hermione's and like gain her trust as a potential partner, what it's instead done is taught him how to be patronizing. So when he compliments her, he's being patronizing. He's not genuinely engaging with her on things that she finds interesting or things that like are important to her or whatever. So when they get to number 12 Grimmauld Place and she does the spell to see if there are any people there and nothing happens and Ron's like, oh, they're there. You've just had a big shock. And Hermione's like, not like this... That was how it was supposed to work. <laughs> so once again, yeah. pickup culture is bullshit and women are people. Yeah. Pickup culture is bullshit. Women are people. And any discourses or ideologies that insist on a fundamental divide between men and women is sexist and transphobic. Yes. So fuck all of that. Yeah. All of it. Forever. Just fuck it. Just fuck it all. Like Ron's sort of ongoing misogyny, because I do believe that Ron is he's a misogynist character is also in place not only his treatment of Hermione but also in his treatment of Ginny right because he gives Harry this book as you were pointing out and then he gets so mad when he sees Harry making out with Ginny and it's like well you know like you just gave him this book and he's living under the same roof as his ex like Mm -hmm. surprise surprise but what's happening there is that Ron is asserting his own greater right to ownership over Ginny's body and her behavior Mm -hmm. because Ginny is his little sister right so it's like go find a woman who doesn't belong to me and use these dehumanizing tactics on her instead which also reminds me of within sort of sexist misogynist discourse you see a lot of men being like well i can't be a sexist because i love my wife and my daughters Mm -hmm. and it's like or my mother mother, (laughs) i mean this was the whole plot of batman v superman that was like oh these are obviously good men they love their mothers barf no 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 if the only women who you can have respect for are women who you somehow are asserting possession over then you are still a misogynist piece of garbage Mm -hmm. i mean that's a hypothetical you because none of our listeners are included in this category of humans but you know if you ever hear anybody try to claim that they're not sexist because they love their mother Mm -hmm. tell them they're a misogynist piece of garbage yeah 
but only if you're in a public place with lots of other people around because don't put yourself at risk for us listeners okay before moving on from this section let's just Mm -hmm. end with a brief rundown (laughs) of the other major female characters Mm -hmm. in this in this book Okay, so I was really taken by Mrs. Weasley's exceptional abilities to manipulate the people in her life, which I find like annoying because I think there's a lot of discourse around like mothers being henpecking. However, I really appreciated how unnerving it was to Harry that she could go from one minute interrogating him to the next minute saying like, oh, thank you, dear. Could you please take this laundry up to the bedroom? (laughs) I thought that was great. Yeah, it's really amazing to see how her usual identity as the caretaker can become something that she tactically redeploys Mm -hmm. whenever she wants to actually take control of the situation. Okay. So I want to talk briefly about Luna Mm -hmm. who the, the closer we get to the end of these books, the more I will confess that I'm starting to have like some intense sort of um, shipping feelings (laughs) about Harry and Luna. I really, really think that the two of them would be a much better couple than Harry and Ginny. But I love that moment in which Luna arrives at the wedding and recognizes Harry instantly because Luna doesn't look at the way people look on the outside. She actually looks at people. Mm -hmm. um, And that has a lot to do with her sort of upbringing of being skeptical and critical and resisting Mm -hmm. the status quo and resisting the versions of truth that she's offered. I mean, that makes her weird. It makes her an outcast. It means that people laugh at her all the time. And yet it also means that she can look at things and see things for what they are rather than only seeing what she expects to see. And that is a remarkable power. Yes. Yeah. At the same time, and I like totally sympathize with your shipping of Harry and Luna, I loved the moment at the wedding when Auntie Muriel is talking about how uh, Ginevra's dress is too low cut, and then Ginny turns around and winks at Harry. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah, you know it. (laughs) I love... I love women who are like fully confident in their sexuality. Like that is something that I just think is so underrepresented in a lot of texts that we read. Yeah. And I mean, that sort of matches well with the fact that Ginny is the one who makes the move on Harry in this book, right? That Harry's like, oh no, I can't be with you because I'm too noble a hero. And Ginny's like, yeah, let's make out in this room. Bless her. So we've made it out of the rain, the sky's starting to clear, so let's round things off with one last segment. It's final revisions, in which we take turns asking each other interpretation testing questions. This week, Marcel is going to be asking me questions, and I am obviously full of positive springtime feelings about it. Are you ready, Marcel? I'm so ready. Okay, so my first question is, what shape is the dedication oh i think it's a lightning bolt this took me some time i looked at it dedication is a squiggle and at first i was like oh it's a snake oh that's interesting like it's the ongoing image of the serpent whatever what convinced me that it was a lightning bolt was the you stuck with harry until the very end which sort of indicates that's the end of the the dedication which indicates to me that we're supposed to be reading it as about harry Mm -hmm. um I'm not sure if it has exactly the same lightning bolt shape as is usually represented like Mm -hmm. in pictures of Harry, but I read that as a lightning bolt. I would be interested to hear if any of our readers read it as something else. I think that's awesome because that had not occurred to me. I was thinking like maybe it was pensive 
swirls or maybe yeah. i also thought maybe snake but like it didn't really look not like a really snake because like snakes are coily and yeah. not zigzaggy yeah. but yeah lightning bolt makes a lot of sense that's yeah. awesome my other question is about the way in which this book seems to be heavily invested in the idea of choosing what to believe versus the objective truth and we talked about this a little bit earlier but i would like to know in your relationship with the books hannah do you believe in objective truth and can we really choose what to believe? I mean, I very much do not believe in objective truth. And I think that it's important to distinguish between a disbelief in objective truth and a sort of total moral relativism that reduces all things to everybody's perspective is equal, right? Not believing in objective truth doesn't mean that you believe everybody's perspective is equal. And I think that's an important distinction that allows you to still imbue the world with value and to believe that there's value behind the judgments and choices you make without believing that only the values and judgments you make are valid and that everybody else's must be incorrect. And I think, P.S., that it is one of the things that we learn to do particularly well as interpreters of texts, Mm -hmm. because texts themselves do not have singular objective meanings. They have multiple possible interpretations Mm -hmm. that emerge through a combination of what you believe, Mm -hmm. right? Which comes to the second part of your question, that meaning is like a conversation between reader and text, right? And so it's it's not just about you imposing what you've decided in advance on the text. It's about you entering into dialogue with what you find there and and interpreting it and thinking hard about the details without having to reduce that to a sort of transcendent absolute meaning. I'm really thinking here about the sort of postmodern image of the archaeologist, mm-hmm. right? So postmodern poets drew quite heavily on the image of the archivist or the archaeologist. That is the one who, in an attempt to put together the truth, realizes that they can never access the truth. What they can access are fragments Mm -hmm. that you have to piece back together and then you have to interpret. And that's what archaeologists are always doing, right? They're finding shards, they're piecing them back together as best they can, and they're interpreting them. And they have to sort of reside in the humility of knowing that interpretation will only ever be an interpretation. Mm-hmm. And I think what we see Harry doing in this book is being sort of an archaeologist, a detective, an archivist, all those things that Robert Croach was really into, mm-hmm. Harry is having to do because he wants the truth, but he can't get the truth. He can't handle the truth, Marcel. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. But you can't, like, there's no point of access to it, right? I mean, the whole series of books has been about the limited nature of our personal perspectives. Mm -hmm. What he can do is shift from the sort of belief in transcendent absolute authority to being the archaeologist who seeks out the fragments, who seeks out multiple perspectives to try to piece things together as best he can. Mm -hmm. I'll be interested to see if that theory I have holds up with the rest of the book because I haven't read it before, so who knows? Who knows? It was wonderfully answered. Thank you. Thank you, our most darling of listeners, for joining us for episode 13A of Witch Pleased. As always, you can find the rest of our episodes at ohwitchpleased.ca, subscribe to us on your podcaster of choice, and maybe leave us a review on iTunes. 
And you know what else you can do to support us? Check out our sweet new merch available through Society6 at Society6, that's the number six, dot com slash oh witch please, or through the link on our website. Obviously, you want to own a mug with our beautiful, intelligent, and humble faces on it. Who wouldn't? <laughs> Hannah was supposed to say that, but I was like, who wouldn't? It just like came from my soul. <laughs> Special thanks, as always, to Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? Our erstwhile tech support and the robot of our hearts. And joyful springtime greetings to everyone who's been tweeting at or about us. Neferet1884, Ms. Megan, S.M. Arbuthnot, Smarakuya, Unquiet Brain, Alicia Ardeline, Now We're All Tom, Uterps Delight, Patrick Craig, Haderpet, Kira Naval, Whiteley Rose, Matt L.A. Schneider, Matt Domville, Holly Dunn Design, The Kalesa, DeBeckle, Physics Katie, Kelsey Elsewhere, Neil Politan, My Book Jacket, Combustible Rev, Mom Streeter, El Bourgon, Danicdote, Seen and Heard Yeg, Yasmin Hilliam, Flowdot, Sam 82129877, yes, Alan Matley, Red or MC1R, Niemel's Winter, Candrumcell. If you want us to pronounce that differently, just send us a message and explain it phonetically and we will correct it next time. Uh, Hunter Sony, Sparrow Swain, Rosa Bialski, and It's Just Roar. If any of you want to go and get a drink on a patio somewhere, just let us know. We'd be into that. If all goes according to plan, next episode will bring you the second part of our Deathly Hallows discussion. But until then, later, witches. <laughs>